The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And Laura is going to be popping in here and there for this episode. She could not make it for this recording, but we do think we have a synopsis for you because we know her synopsises are just delightful. Her synopsi, I should say. But we are joined by a special guest. He's a writer and podcaster and the co-founder of Certified Forgotten, Matt Monagall. Matt, welcome to the pod. Hello, I'm a special guest. You are a special guest. We're so excited. And I'm so excited about the movie that you picked that I might I might explode. Um, so this is a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that bring us joy. And I am so excited to talk about today's movie, in case you can't tell. Um, so Matt, what movie are we talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's, sorry, not Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul W.S. Anderson's <laughs> seminal 1997 classic, Event Horizon. Woo! Arguably, I would say the best film directed by anyone who has the first name Paul and last name Anderson. Oh, that is, that is a bigger argument that for another is, time. Yes. I think I might agree with you, though. I think, yeah. But wow. I think that this is this is a film that that probably ruined an entire generation of horror fans uh, on VHS at Blockbuster. So I'm super excited to talk about it today. <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before I so that cannot was agree with that statement, <laughs> Mike just Listen. wants to go on record to say. Yes. If you if you put me if you put me on a desert island and said I could only have one film by somebody named Paul something Anderson to watch for the rest of my life, I would be super hard pressed not to pick that this one. That's all. Different I'm argument. Here. Different argument, and that I will that I could I could okay, say fair, yeah, fair, the fair. judges will allow. <laughs> Different, yes. I, I don't want to railroad the podcast oh, three right. minutes in. So. Oh no, please! <laughs> like no, these are the kind of things. Fight. Trust me, we we usually re, re, blah, 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 we usually railroad it much sooner. That's true. What yes. the discomfort and comfort horror? We, we haven't broken out the penny whistle yet. So, oh no, that's yeah. true. Right. Although I do have my uh, alto recorder ready in Excellent. the wings. So, <laughs> um, but before we uh, talk about this movie, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen Event Horizon or it's been a while. Um, so here's your spoiler alert. It's in Latin and it sounds pretty good at first, but then it's too late to turn back and you translate it and you realize that you are totally fucked. This is Lara and I'm going to read the Event Horizon synopsis. Okay. We open with one of those speculative future sci-fi synopsis things. 2040, the Event Horizon is set out to explore the outer reaches of the galaxy, but then disappeared without a trace. She wasn't heard from for seven years. Until now. We see a spooky floating CGI spaceship filled with lots of CGI debris and a floating bloody man who screams in front of a cross-shaped window. Cut to the Lewis and Clark, a rescue vessel with a top-secret mission, which would be more period-accurate if it was called Amazon Presents the Muskmobile. There, Dr. Weir, played by the always delightful Sam Neill, wakes from a nightmare, yearning for a lost love that he has a lot of photos of. 
the Lewis and Clark crew are preparing to enter stasis. It's a tight crew, both in their relationships and their hard, sexy bodies. And Weir is the outsider. While in stasis, Weir has a nightmare about his dead, nude, wet wife. He wakes up screaming. Cut to 56 days later. The crew is emerging from stasis, and we get formally introduced to the ensemble. Lawrence Fishburne is the captain, Miller. Peters, a medical technician, had to leave her son to go on this mission. There's Stark, a lady who gets hit on too much. Justin, the baby of the crew. Cooper, a rescue technician who hits on Stark too much. And DJ, a doctor played by the always sexually attractive, to me personally, Jason Isaacs. They've been called off of a leave for a mysterious mission, and they all blame Weir. That's because he is in charge of the mysterious mission, and it's totally his fault. They're way out past Neptune, and they got a distress signal from who else but the Event Horizon. There was a public statement that this ship blew up, but what really happened is that the ship was an experiment to create a dimensional gateway. This gateway folds time and space so that both places exist in the same place and time. Got it? Weir built it and uses a big titty pinup poster to reenact the Tesseract analogy from A Wrinkle in Time. Also, this is a hostile work environment. At some point after turning on the gateway, the event horizon disappeared and has been missing for the last seven years. But don't worry, they got a signal, and it's full of guttural inhuman screams. This is fine. Everything is fine. There's turbulence flying into Neptune's atmosphere, and the Lewis and Clark almost runs into the event horizon. There she blows! Captain Larry Fishburne, Cooper, and Justin check out the mysterious ship. It's freezing, and there's trash and gadgets and a corpse floating around, and is that blood and guts caked to the walls? Oh, brother. <laughs> Justin finds the core of the gravity drive. It's a steampunk-looking sphere with gears thing that might as well be screaming, I'm evil as hell. The gateway opens, and Justin sticks his hand into the black goo in the middle. Rookie mistake, Justin. Something pulls him in, and Cooper manages to rescue him, but not before the core explodes and shoots evil juice all over the ship and damages the Lewis and Clark, putting a big ol' hole in its hull. Smith has to fix their ship before they run out of air so they can GTFO. Justin is fucked up in the infirmary. Cooper's trying to explain what he saw, but Weir is gaslighting him, saying that's not possible. They go down to look at the core. It's basically a black hole contained by magnetic fields. Weir says it's perfectly safe. Everyone else is like, fuck you, it tried to eat a guy. In the infirmary, Peters has a vision of her son, deathly ill and covered in sores, but then he disappears. ruh -roh. The Lewis and Clark crew finds the video log of the Event Horizon crew. They seem nice. Then they're screaming in blurriness. Peter says she'll run a few filters, which is the Event Horizon version of Enhance. Meanwhile, Weir climbs into the film Cube to try and do some repairs or something. He hears whispering and is once again jump-scared by a vision of his dead wife. Elsewhere, Captain Larry's past arises from the liquid, bitching and complaining about how Larry let him die. Wine, wine, wine. The crew gathers to talk about what they've been seeing. Weir continues to gaslight them, and they break out fighting because it's very clear some fucked up shit is going down. Next, Justin is missing from the infirmary. 
Then they seem to come under attack. An explosion drives Peters into a corridor. There's banging against the door to space, like they're being attacked by space jaws. And it seems like Weir is turning kind of evil. Weir says, open the door, and walks over to the door to fucking space, but Stark stops him. I tell you, there's always one asshole on every spaceship who ruins it for the rest of us. Now, Justin's in the airlock with no suit. He's going to open the door. He seems to be in a trance. Peters is trying to talk him off the ledge, to no effect. He asks Peters if she heard it, the darkness inside him. He says, it shows you things, terrible things. Then he opens the outer door. Oh no. Justin comes to his senses in the airlock with the door about to open. He begs them to let him back inside, but they can't do that without depressurizing the whole ship. His veins are starting to bulge and spacify. Captain Larry is on the way, but now Justin's eyeballs are exploding. He floats out into the space with no suit, coughing blood everywhere, but Larry pulls him back in. Other crew members open the door and come to the rescue, but let's be honest, he's a hot mess. They now have four hours to get off the ship. Captain Larry continues to hear strange noises and see Hellraiser-style visions. He confides in Dr. DJ that he thinks the ship is alive. It knew about that guy that he let die that one time, and he never told anyone that story for some reason. DJ confides in return that he's been listening more closely to the Latin distress signal that they heard at the beginning of the film, and I forgot to mention. Turns out the voice isn't saying, save me. It's actually saying, save yourself. Save yourself from hell! Big yike. It's perfect timing, as Peters has filtered the Event Horizon crew video, and oh shit, it's some kind of kinky murder orgy. The captain has ripped his own eyes out. Where did they get so much barbed wire from? Jesus Christ. In an amazing reaction shot, Larry Fishburne shuts the video off and is like, Um, a chick, please? Larry isn't having any of this bullshit. He says he's going to leave the ship, then blow it up from a safe distance. Then he says, fuck this ship, we're going home. Captain Larry is all of us, am I right? Weir replies ominously, saying the ship won't let them leave, and he is home, before disappearing into the evil darkness. As they prepare to keep repairing the ship, Peter sees her son again. She chases after him along some ship scaffolding, but he ultimately leads her to her death as she falls to the bottom of the core. Weir sees Peter's dead body and seems to realize that he's fucked them all over. He has another vision of his wife, and suddenly he's back in his old apartment, where we learn that she killed herself. Weir watches this, racked with grief, but then her ghost grabs his head and goes full Cenobite, saying she has such wonderful things to show you before ripping his eyes out. And then there's a little, like, ba sound. That doesn't happen. Cooper finally fixes the ship, and it's go time, baby. But Weir's been messing around, and one of the emergency explosives from the Event Horizon is missing. Clark finds it seconds before it explodes, but it's too late to stop it. Kablooey! Looks like they're not going home just yet. Cooper, who is still spacewalking, floats out into space. He tries to get back by blowing his air tank jetpack style. DJ is in the med lab, being hot and being Jason Isaacs, when he's attacked by the now eyeless Weir. Weir throws him around with his hell strength, then cuts him open and hooks him upside down by his skin in a kind of NBC Hannibal style motif. Looks pretty cool. Captain Larry and Stark are the only two left on the ship, and they formally need to get the fuck out. But Weir is there to stop them and give them a speech about how the Event Horizon oops tore a hole through straight into literal hell and now the ship is possessed worse than a 58 Plymouth Fury and it needs a new crew. Of the damned! Cooper manages to float back, but Weir shoots him with a space harpoon and blows the hole or something. He gets sucked out into space again. 
Captain Larry almost does too, but manages to hold onto a cord and prop the door open long enough to save Stark, redeeming himself by not leaving her behind. If anyone cares at this point, the plan is to blow up part of the event horizon and then use another part of it as an escape vessel and somehow Cooper survived? I don't know, man. The group splits up to do various escape tasks. Always a good sign. That's when blood starts pouring out of everywhere. Boy, oh boy, what a day. A vision of Larry's dead fire bro drives him into the gravity core room. The whole core is on fire now. Fire guy sets Larry on fire and throws him into a pool of blood, which kind of defeats the point. I don't know. It turns out the fire guy was actually Weir, who has his eyes back, but is covered in wounds and nothing else. Hubba hubba. JK, this is not a sexy moment. Weir says the ship won't let anyone leave. And then shows Larry visions of the crew getting Hellraiser tortured. This is very, very bad. The gateway is opening, and Weir wants Larry to join the Getting Tortured Forever party. Captain Larry, having had enough of this, finds the detonator on the floor. He pushes the button, separating the gate from the ship, dooming himself to hell but saving the rest of the crew. What a nice guy. That part of the ship gets sucked into the black hole of hell while Stark and Cooper watch. 72 days later, Stark and Cooper are rescued from stasis. But the rescue guy is weird. There is no escape. Psych. It's a real rescue guy and they're really getting rescued. But Stark is cracked and screaming like a final girl right before the end credits. Speaking of which, that's the end of Event Horizon, directed by P.T. Anderson. Wait. I mean, Paul W.S. Anderson? What the fuck? Okay, sorry about that. And then death metal closing credit song, but for real this time. And I think this is where I always want to say the name of the movie in death metal, because I remember just the closing credits of the song. Yeah. Um, all right. So now let's do a feelings check. And this is when we share our first experience with event horizon and how it makes us feel when we watch it. Um, and Matt, I would love to hear about your first experience with event horizon. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this as I was prepping for the show and I know that I, the first time that I watched this must have been in high school um, for the very reason of, you know, I, I was in high school in 98 to 2002, which would have been just the right time for this movie to be, you know, 18 copies of this on the shelf at Blockbuster. And I remember seeing this for the first time and it's scaring me really badly because this was, if you are a horror fan, you've probably seen a lot of kind of gross and explicit horror up to this point that's also sort of comedic right like a lot mm -hmm. of people cut their teeth on the evil deads and the peter jacksons of the world and unless you came up kind of through the clive barker path which this movie owes you know basically everything to mm -hmm. you probably weren't used to this sort of sadomasochistic torture horror kind of stuff so it was it was an eye-opener for me and that i grew up with a lot of kind of humorous horror when i rediscovered horror in high school and decided that this was a genre that i really liked i was looking at a lot of comedic stuff this is not particularly comedic it does a lot with even in small flashes of its held dimension and the little looks we get at what happens to the previous crew it's a lot it's it's dialed up pretty pretty heavily so mm. i remember this scaring me very badly when i first watched it but at the same time i remember being in love with it pretty much from the first moment that i saw it because it was just something that was so utterly unique. It had an aesthetic and a design style that kind of seemed all of its own. It really, it, it was, even then I could recognize that a lot of the actors that I was really drawn to were in this film. Later on, I'd come to recognize that Paul W.S. Anderson has sort of his favorites he worked in early in his career. He worked with Jason Isaacs a lot, Sean Pertwee, um, who, you know, another high school favorite was Dog Soldiers. So you definitely get to know him from that movie too. Began to kind of like recognize sort of these British character actors or certainly English character actors that, that were popping up in a lot of these films. 
but it, it became sort of this weird litmus test for me where I was like, oh, this is like the most popular, the most commercial hardcore movie I can show people, right? Because mm. I'm not going to I'm not going to roll up to a, a party in college and be like, hey, have you seen the faces of death? But I could <laughs> roll up to a party in college and be like, hey, let's watch Event Horizon. This mm. movie kicks ass. They had kind of like this beautiful intersection of real genuine horror scares, but also like super commercial viability when you'd be like, oh yeah, this was a $60 million movie by a director whose name you recognize and you've seen some of their other work. And because I've always been sort of a not so secret populist, because I'm always drawn towards big, bad, mid-range budget movies, that's always been something I find myself weirdly forgiving of because mm -hmm. they're, they're usually bad. So it becomes the exercise, of where's the good in it? Mm -hmm. This has kind of been the most of that for me. This has been the most that a film... You know, that was not some indie, that was not something that like people really people wore its heart on its sleeve. This was like a movie that was intended to open in 2000 theaters across the United States and be seen by a huge audience. And that makes the successes of the film, its initial failure, the resulting kind of cult rise of the movie, that it just adds a little bit of, of you know, this unique storytelling element to all of it. So um, it really, it's been... Even even when I first saw it, probably at 15, 16 years old and recognized it was more than I was bargaining for, it's really become something that I keep coming back to again and again. It's like a movie that I just, it's just, it's it's comfort food at this point, which is, of course, the point of this episode. But mm -hmm. this was definitely one of the, I think, one of the first horror movies where I was like, oh, that kind of, that kind of fucked me up a little bit. So I claim it for mine and I'm going to hold on to it forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is Laura reporting from The Void with my feelings check. I think Event Horizon is the only film bold enough to ask, what if Alien were Hellraiser? But really, I love this movie. It's so cheesy and goofy at moments, but it's so consistently entertaining. It's a great role for Larry Fishburne to be like sympathetic and heroic, but stern. Um, I, I really like him in this. And Sam Neill to be evil and obsequious, which is kind of casted against type for him. So he, I don't know. He goes 50-50. Like it's somewhere between Jurassic Park and Possession is Event Horizon. I also have a long-standing crush on Jason Isaacs, if you couldn't tell from the synopsis. I, I don't know. I just said he's like, mm, he's just so like, he just seems like he doesn't give a fuck. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't need to know that. I'm sorry. Um, there's like some really terrible CGI, especially at the beginning and music and like that f fucking credit sequence music really dates it. But who cares? It's all part of the charm of this one for me. I also found the airlock scene disturbing. I think about it because it was always airing on TV when I was young. I would say, I mean, this was 97. So I had to be kind of in the tween years by the time this would have been coming on TV. But similar to the scene in Jaws where Quint gets eaten by Jaws um like I feel like this was always on TV and never censored so I just would always think about like what would it be like to get sucked into the void of space and I'd picture the veins on his arms bulging up and then his like eyes bleeding and I would have a, a tiny panic attack but now it's fine um it is fairly disturbing at moments but it goes like over the top enough to still be fun and the silliness offsets it like this is one I would pick any time to show to friends like around Halloween or as a midnight movie just be like you want to watch a fun horror movie that gets like really goofy and all of, like your friends can laugh at it together it would be Event Horizon it's just fun Mike what about you yeah so this um if this was one of those movies that I had known about for years but never watched I definitely mid 
90s horror is a bit of a blind spot in some ways for me, although this is post-Scream, so that would have been what I would have seek most things, and I don't know why I didn't catch this, and I feel like I just knew about it, and I probably read some article like in the early 2010s or it's like horror movies that you haven't seen that you owe it yourself to watch. Mm-hmm. And this would have been one of those movies. Probably an, an article written by Matt, probably <laughs> to be. Um, it could be. I There are a yeah. handful of films that I try and evangelize and this mm-hmm. is one of them. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll pick this up on, on, I think at the time, like just picked it up on Netflix or rented it from somewhere. And it's funny because like, the two subgenres of horror that honestly are ruined for me a little bit because of, you know, shark horror because of Jaws. Like, I just don't really watch other shark horror movies. Um, and space horror because of Alien. Even to the point where I don't even really like Aliens that much. My hot take is that's maybe the third or fourth <laughs> best movie in the whole series. And so space horror as a genre is kind of like not my jam because of those two that movie in particular that said i can 100 percent see why this is someone's jam because it's a lot of fun like paul anderson you've seen it with like his mortal Kombat, his residential evil movie resident <laughs> evil movies residential um, evil is like the residential evil yes. <laughs> um yeah that would be great um <laughs> i would watch it. resident evil movies he just makes really fun popcorn movies that you know, he has a lane. He stays in it. He really enjoys making movies with his wife. And I think that's amazing. So this kind of falls in that, except he has a better cast than usual. Anytime you see Sam Neill in a movie, you're like, oh, there's going to be some gravitas here. Mm-hmm. And this is, follows like Sam Neill doing like In the Mouth of Madness, which is another kind of like journey into cosmic horror. Lawrence, uh, you know, Lawrence Fishburne, always going to be a pleasure to see in any movie so in this one like what i remembered before rewatching it today is like ah the effects i remember like the effects being really dated uh, and the cgi is is that time where cgi was just getting to the point where anyone could use it um it was coming down enough and it had been around long enough that said like the practical sets they use look gorgeous um the acting i think you know, especially from from uh sam nell and fishburn is great um it actually rewatching it today it gave me like joseph conrad heart of darkness feeling so i'm kind of looking forward to maybe discussing that a little bit when we get into the movie it's an enjoyable romp i think of a film is it something i would turn to like every year no is it something that i would maybe pick up the blu-ray on scream factory when it comes down a little bit in price and throw on every couple years yeah absolutely yeah, this is it's very atmospheric and I think that makes it a really good background watch in a lot of ways, you know, because mm-hmm. like you look up at the screen and you're pretty yeah. much getting like death metal space goth. Yeah. You know, and I can't do that. I can't do background movies. Oh, really? I Yeah, I can't either. I can't. Oh. I, like if I throw something I've tried, like if I throw something in, I'm just all right. After five minutes, like I'm just watching it. There, you're just distracted. I have been living and breathing background movies for the mm-hmm. since I've been working at home, and I've caught. Now I, you know, I need to go back and actually watch a lot of them. Um, if I were ever to write or you know do one for a pod, but 
I I saw this in theaters and it was it came out in 97 and I like late 90s horror is my sweet spot it's my absolute favorite era of horror um I think I had like I grew up reading Stephen King and then I saw Scream and I was like had just started driving so I could go to the movies myself I didn't have to like convince my parents to take me I had friends who were into horror too kind of um so I went to see this I remember with my friend Nathan and I just remember him when the when the credits rolled like getting up and screaming and running out of the theater. Now probably maybe a little more dramatic than we needed to, but like it terrified us. We were so scared, like in a great way, you know, and kind of like Matt, what you said, like I kind of clung to this as like my scariest movie that I had seen up to that point. Um, And it like, was like the challenge movie, you know, and I think mm-hmm. I bought it on VHS and I brought, and I am not um, a big sci-fi fan and I normally don't really love space horror, but this one felt so much more like a haunted house movie, you know, that I think that was kind of my way into it. And there is still, I mean, it's obviously still in space and that is a, a really cool part of it, but I just, I absolutely loved it. Um, but yeah, it was a lot more extreme than some of the other things I was watching because this was when I was really into movies like Scream and kind of rediscovering a lot of Stephen King adaptations. And this is not that. I had not seen uh, Hellraiser at this point. So this was like the first kind of like gore, but like kind of into it movie that I had seen. That's probably the worst way to describe that. But like Clive Barker-esque, like chaotic, like really gory energy. And I was really intrigued by that. Um, but at the same time, it's not so gory that it put me off or that was hard for me to watch. And I know that, you know, there's an extended, well, there hopefully one day will be an extended cut, which I'm sure is something that we're going to talk about. But it was just the right amount of gore and like extreme violence without actually showing me something that was too much for me. So that's part of why I loved it. And then I didn't see it for a couple of years. Um, It kind of like fell off my radar. And then I just put it on yesterday and it was just like all of my high school like nostalgia feelings. I was like, yes, it's Event Horizon. You know, it just brings that out in me, which a lot of 90s horror does. Um, and it's it's unique, you know, and, it, you know, I know it's got a troubled production history, which, again, I know we're going to talk about, but there's like a magic to it, you know, and I feel like because it kind of got to be what it wanted to be without a lot of oversight until it was really too late to make it a different movie, like it feels like an outlier. It feels like it was really a singular kind of movie, and I just absolutely love it. So... This is where we talk about what we love about Event Horizon. And we kind of mentioned the the troubled production history. So maybe that's a good place to start. Um, so I am not a super expert on a lot of this, but I know that it was bumped up significantly because of Titanic, because Titanic was so delayed. And so instead of like, what, 10 weeks to edit, it only had like four weeks, six, six, six or four, I think. Yeah, Yeah, maybe it was four weeks to build the set or something like everything was was super rushed. He had six weeks, but then he had to shoot like second unit for two so that it ended up being really four. Yeah. And there are some scars. I mean, when when I look at the effects, like I give it a lot of grace because I just love it so much and because I understand like what the deal behind that was. But um, but it just is amazing what they were actually did actually manage to do in that short amount of time. Yeah, there's a there is a good. um ringer article from i think just last year that talks about 
kind of the making of it and the fact that they went through the process of developing this software that basically would allow them to recreate Gothic architecture as the design of the ship. And that's kind of the process by how which they did a lot of the practical effects. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's one of the things um, one of the things you have in common about a lot of these films that have these bad production histories, but kind of are practical first is it allows them to do some interesting things in the editing process. It's sort of, if the emphasis is so much on creating a realistic world that the actors can inhabit and allowing people to like be in a cool ship with cool production design, those are the films that survive a troublesome edit, I think, because, because those elements are already there. Mm -hmm. And it's not about like, you don't have the pieces, right? There are the films where they, they just like, they didn't, they were going to do it afterwards. They were going to do it in post. They were going to do it later. And they ran out of time for that. And it really tells, but things like the empty man, right. Which is the 2020s um, cult classic bad production du jour. You know, those were films that, that a lot of what was going to work about it was there on the tape already. They didn't Mm -hmm. have to add, they didn't have to fix it. They just had to figure out the right way to sort of put it together. And I think that the beauty of event horizon for me is that like, even I don't think that there is a, I know there's a lot of mystique and mystery about like, oh, is there the director's cut of this because the footage was famously lost in a Transylvanian salt mine, <laughs> which is like the weirdest fucking sentence ever. I know. But like, <laughs> if they ever managed to find that missing footage, can Anderson put together his cut? Like, part of me thinks there isn't a better version of this. There's just a longer version of this mm-hmm. because it's about making what they already had work, not about like, you know, kind of when you when you have those constraints on you, you kind of find the best version of your thing. And yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of these kind of films where people are like, oh, have you seen the director's cut? And it's very rare that I find that more equals better when it comes to these sort of movies. Mm -hmm. Well, he just talks about what is missing and it's like more of the kind of like Hellraiser flashes at the end of the movie Mm -hmm. uh, or your sequences. Um, The kind of like orgy of death, like the orgy slash death sequence. The blood orgy. Yeah, that's longer as well. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, do I need like a two hour version of that movie? Right. Um, yeah. And it's like, probably not like it, it, at a certain point, it just kind of becomes overkill. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say at like 96 minutes. I'm like, eh, if your minutes movies, 96 minutes, it could be 89. Like, that's just. <laughs> well, Mike, you mentioned, you mentioned Jaws earlier. I mean, that's kind yeah. of a, the hell sequences in this film are mm-hmm. the shark and Jaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they had very good reasons, technical reasons to not be able to show more of it. Mm-hmm. But if you did show more of it, it wouldn't have looked as good, right? Like yeah. exactly that. The more time we spend in that hell place, the more you're like, oh, okay, like, cool. You just, you know, you shot really graphic stuff, but it's the explicit nature of it. You kind of wears mm-hmm. in a little bit and you're like, okay, this is just a lot. Like you need, it needs to feel like something that is is unformed. That's something you're just like glimpsing a shape of. It gives it that little bit of eldritch horror element that it needs to work. And if you spent your time really delving into that, then you're like, okay, this is just this is just a bad music video. Is right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like the video from The Ring just expanded too, you know? Yeah. And I feel like there's like this movie has kind of an urban legend element attached to it with that mysterious footage that we'll never see, which is part of kind of the allure of it, you know? And I think I, I don't really want to see more of that because what I've read sounds like it would be something I wouldn't want to watch, you know? And mm-hmm. I think like part of the reason, like the reason we don't have it now, I think is because it was lost. But one of the reasons that they took it out is because it like horrified people and mm-hmm. it, they found that it was really maybe too much. And I mean, without having seen it, I can't say that for sure. But like, 
to me, that's not what this movie is. This movie is not about hell. It's about like the threat of hell, you know? And I feel like if you lean into that, you take away from like the fantastic performances and from like Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill, like slowly losing his mind like that. I find more compelling than the video that we finally get. And I love that we hear it first and then we see just enough and my mind can create enough of that. Um, because if I want to see that, that that kind of footage is out there. You know, I can find some really blood orgy torture stuff. And that's not the movie that I want to watch with this, you know. And it's it, it speaks sort of to the career that that I think Paul, Paul W.S. Anderson could have had. You know, a lot of people who have seen a lot of his films and are from, kind of think they're familiar with his work. If you haven't seen Shopping, you should really, really, really see Shopping because it is a fantastic film that is both unlike and very much like all of the work that would follow. And kind of, you know, that established the relationships he had with a few of his regulars. Sean Pertwee and Jason Isaacs are both in that film. It's about sort of like a blue collar train spotting kind of story um, about youth and revolt. But one of the themes I think of a lot of Anderson's earliest work is this idea of like blue collar solidarity. It's in shopping, it's in soldier, it's in this. And that becomes kind of the focal point. I think that what makes this, you know, kind of a nice parallel to a movie like Aliens is it, it understands that idea of like space is a non-utopia, the future is a non-utopia. Like this crew is pissed, they're overworked. They're probably complaining to their union rep before they left that they have all these things that they need to do and they were cut short on vacation. Mm-hmm. And so the film becomes the same kind of mentality of like god, I hate this job and like look at what, you know, look at what this job makes you do kind of thing. And mm-hmm. that allows you to sort of build on the relationships and the performances of the actors to the point where like there isn't anybody in this crew that I'm sorry to see go. And that's kind of a, a strange thing for a lot of movies because they want you, you know, whenever you watch a horror or haunted house film, half the people you're looking at easily are going to die. And, you know, the deaths aren't, it's, I've seen the film enough to not be like personally upset by any of the deaths, but like I miss having these characters when one of them gets killed I miss not having that character for the rest of the movie. And I think that's a testament to kind of like they root this so much in what's happening to these people that that you do like the threat of hell becomes the threat to them, not Mm -hmm. just like a vague threat of hell. And it makes it a movie where you really care about the crew in a way that many, many, many science fiction films have not managed to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. The moment where Smith finds the bomb and he finds it with like five seconds. And I know that this is probably not the first time that's ever been in a movie, but this was the first time I had seen that kind of thing play out when you realize you're about to die. And just the way he just looks down and that has just always stuck with me. And I, for a long time, I was like, try to try to fix it because I really wanted him to survive in that moment. And he's probably like the crew member. I think we spend the least amount of time with, mm-hmm. but he still is so captivating and everybody like they've got personality and they seem to really get along and really care about each other. And like, even with the baby bear and the mama bear thing, which could read as a little hokey, but like it really works here and it makes you really like those characters more. Justin's death is another one that has really stuck yeah. with me. Um, just like the way when his um, his veins like spacify is the only word that I could think of, but it like really, really bothers me. And just when he realizes what is about to happen, but knows that they can't stop it and he's looking at Mama Bear, it just, it's all, it's, it's really upsetting, you know? And you have to give Sean Pertwee's character bonus credit because he's, 
one of the only characters in horror history that does the thing that we always wish they would do. They're like, we're going aboard the Event Horizon. He says, fuck no, I'm staying on this ship. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not going in. And he doesn't. He d- spends the entire movie, refuses to go on board the ship that he that he doesn't want, doesn't want to spend any time on there if he can. Mm-hmm. It's one of those moments where you're like, oh, like you can make characters, you can have characters in horror films make the right decision and have it still not matter in the end. And that's when it becomes good. Yeah. That's when it becomes really scary. Right. Yeah. Cause he's done everything right. And he still gets mm-hmm. fucked by Sam Neill. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Cooper is another one that I really love too. And I was struck by how funny he is throughout this movie. And it's this type of humor that I think the nineties really tried. And I'm thinking specifically of 13 ghosts. Um, they tried it and I think it kind of kerplunks there, even though there's a lot that I love about this movie, but it's like this kind of like taking the pressure off, having kind of a wisecracking guy, but it really works here. And it makes me really love this character and really like want good things for him because it doesn't feel like it diminishes him like he still feels like a real character he still even when he's kind of hitting on Jolie Richardson like it's not like skeezy you know and I just I love just his arc in the story well I mean you get with this movie there are a lot of parallels alien I mean there's no way around that and you get the introduction to this crew in like that kind of panning shot where everyone is kind of doing their thing and they're kind of bickering like they are kind of a work family. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, you know, one of the things that makes Alien work so well is that it's a work family. Mm -hmm. And you get a little bit of that here where everyone has a role, but they, just like they do with Dallas, like everybody looks to Miller slash Lawrence Fishburne for guidance. And one of the things I really like about this movie is the tension between Miller and Weir uh, right away that's established because... Mm -hmm. You know, Weir is obviously, you know, your science guy that's brought on board to kind of like guide the mission per se. And nobody in the crew is having any part of it whatsoever. Like they just they just want to be home. Mm -hmm. They definitely don't want to be. I think they say like three billion clicks away Mm -hmm. from Earth doing God knows what. And Mm -hmm. I like and I think you have it in your notes, Jen, the um, what stuck to me was like, all right, put it in layman's terms. and. Yeah, I don't know if Weir is thinking that's what layman terms actually are, or if he if it's kind of a bit of a power struggle. He's showing mm-hmm. I am much smarter than everyone else in this room, and I'm going to prove it to you. Um, and to me, that's obviously he's very intelligent, but there's a lack of sense in that moment. There's a lack of like being sensible in that moment because you're going to rely on these people to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. So if you can't like relate to them, they're going to have, they're going to not be on your side and you're not going to mm-hmm. be a cohesive unit. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, he doesn't get that. They are not like really excited to go see the event horizon. Mm-hmm. Like he is, you know, um, side note, that's also where I learned the term layman's terms. And I just, the way that scene plays out, I just love it with Vanessa and like the, that's Vanessa and she's mine. And then the way he folds the paper, there's something yeah. about it. Like it's so well acted. Like everybody has their, their role that they're playing. It's right. just, it's fantastic. And we've seen that so many yeah. times inside, like other big budget, like high profile science fiction films have been like, oh, we're folding space. And I'm like, ah, fuck you guys. Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson, Paul mm. W.S. Anderson did it first. Uh-huh. They did it better. Yeah, totally. And, it's a piece of paper. It's awesome. Yeah. But mm-hmm. when he does that, it shows that he knows how to make it relatable for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just chose not to. Because I'm listening to him talk and I'm like, I'm pretty smart. I have no idea what he's saying right now. <laughs> Liberty, gerberty. Yeah. flippity goo you know what i mean it's like this is 
the worst kind of exposition dump. But then when he just simply like folds it up and sticks the pencil through, I'm like, oh, you know, space sandwich. That makes sense. All right. right. Fantastic. I'm on board. Yeah. And it's a, I think, you know, watching this for the first time, I'm sure because the reviews are terrible. We kind of know the criticisms of the film. You know, one of the things I think that you see sometimes from contemporary reviews is the idea that Weir as a character is pretty underdeveloped. He pops into the ship and then he goes there and he's like, now I'm crazy. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, that was a pretty short arc. But I think one of the thing, one of the best things you can do as a filmmaker, one of the best things you can do as a casting director is recognize how much is just enough for the right actor. Mm-hmm. You know, if you put the right personality into a role, you really don't need a lot and knowing where those boundaries are. But also one of the best things you can do is cast someone who comes in with baggage, with an audience preconception, a kind of like celebrity or something of that nature, and give them an opportunity to work against the preconceived notions that audiences have. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of you know, contemporary actors, like nobody is better at that than Kristen Stewart and Robert Patterson, people that come in and the audience expects something from them and they just, you get something completely different. Mm-hmm. And part of that experience of having your expectations subverted is what makes them such beautiful actors. But I think the idea of Sam Neill, Sam Neill is, you know, Sam Neill is Jurassic Park. Sam uh-huh. Neill is Hunt for Red October. Sam Neill is, I would have liked to have seen Montana. Like he is, for somebody that's not from America, he represents kind of like these all-American ideals and like kind of a, a fatherly understanding and compassion towards people. And so you put him in this role, as gifted as an actor he is, you rewatching it again, I'm surprised at how little else you need. Like he is a scientist. He likes the ship. He's going crazy. That That is paper thin on the page, but he brings so much as an actor and he brings so much as a celebrity to it that it all works. And you really don't need a whole bunch more about Weir to understand kind of why he descends so quickly. Yeah. And watching this, I thought it was less, you know, Weir gets on the ship and then goes insane. I thought it was like Weir is already insane. He's already kind of lost it. And then he gets mm-hmm. on the ship and they don't quite know the madness that they're dealing with. And I think that opening scene where he has that really horrific and prophetic dream, which, I mean, again, for a movie that deals a little bit with like hell, you have like this Christian imagery of that first eyeless man is framed perfectly in a crucifix pose against like that crosshatch looking out into space and then Weir wakes up and it lets you know like this is what you're going to see but I think that he is already there when he gets on the ship and it'd be interesting if there was more more expository footage what does he know and when does he know it mm-hmm. um, which coming they mention like when Weir gives his exposition dump about like here's what the media has told you about the event horizon like this is three years after Waco Texas where you have like the standoff between the ATF and the branch uh, branch Davidian cult. Um, and obviously what came out later versus, versus what we were told in the media at the time. Mm-hmm. It's in some ways, I think like this movie slightly explores that, like what we're told is being happening versus like how much are actually withholding from people that need to know information because we think a, a they can't handle it or B, they're not going to be able uh, to go along with what we need to. A quick side note, actually, Mike, if I can, you mentioned the opening sequence of this film. I think all you need to know 
about whether or not Event Horizon is a movie for you is if somebody says, oh, should I watch this movie? Say, okay, there are no fewer than three fake out dream sequences. Mm-hmm. And if that's something that gets you excited, you're it's good. You're going to do great. And mm-hmm. if that's something that seems bad to you, it's not for you. It's yeah. just one of those, like, tell somebody that this has three dream sequence fake outs. And if they're like, oh, awesome, then you're on the same page yeah. and you can watch it. Yep. I'm sorry, Jen, go ahead. No, no, no. You- I think you're right. <laughs> And usually I'm on the side of like, oh, I hate dream sequences. It's great. Oh, I love it. It still works for me. Three is the right number. If you did one, it's like whatever. If you do two, you're like double whatever. But three, you're like, all right, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do four. Mm -hmm. I'm already on this ride. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And what I think is really interesting about Sam Neill is like since I've seen this movie for the first time, I've had kind of this changing view of what I think his character is because I think now I read him as like maybe he was evil the whole time and he like deliberately tried to get onto this ship and sometimes I read him as really sympathetic and like he got overtaken by this hell evil and then sometimes I read him as like malevolent the whole time and it's kind of like a primal fear moment where like it was all a ruse to get back to his wife and I love that it's like the movie I don't think really knows, you know, and so I can read it however I want, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, it is. His wife is in particular, and you know, kind of an element that you can project whatever sort of a relationship you wanted. Like, mm-hmm. was she somebody who was suffering and he did his best and he lost her and that was really sad? Is Did he produce circumstances that allowed her to be in a situation where she looked at suicide is the only way out. Like, is is he a, a, a potentially powerful negative actor in this as well? Because we're supposed, first time you see it is like, oh, he misses his wife. Oh, he's susceptible to this. But I think there's a totally valid read there where he can be seen as an abuser. He mm-hmm. can be seen as, as somebody who backed her into this corner. And it's, it, it is, it's just vague enough, I think, that it allows a range of reads on who Weir is as a character. Yeah. I saw it as... Not so much abuse, but as like a, and I, that's a great mind that is so wrapped up in his work because he is able to produce something that is taking the realm of science to areas that it's never been before. So he is so wrapped up in his work that that relationship, his relationship with his work becomes more important than the relationship with his family. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah. To a lesser degree, like I know, like Jen, when we've talked before and it's tax season, you're like, oh, I'll see my husband after April. Yep. You know, um, we all have moments where we get wrapped up in our careers and we put our personal relationship on hold to their detriment at times. But this was taken to that nth degree where he was so wrapped up in what his what he was doing scientifically, he maybe never noticed the warning signs that. Claire was suffering from like a deep depression Mm -hmm. and was experiencing these suicidal ideations. Well, and I think there's also for a long time, I thought that the event horizon was designed to go to hell, to this dimension was designed like that was Sam Neill's purpose. And I think over the years, I've kind of shifted in how I read it. And I I don't know, I think I almost like the idea more that it was designed for this purpose, because then you could read, I mean, I could go like far left and read the entire thing as some kind of cult space thing. And this is like the culmination of that. And was his wife a part of that? And, And like we said, the movie doesn't give you enough to know for sure either way, which I think makes it more fascinating to watch every time because I've watched it. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, but every time I kind of get like a slightly um 
different inflection just based on like something else I happened to catch in the performance because it's just such a full performance for a thin thinly written character you know Mm -hmm. yeah and if you read this is the the shining allegory that in a lot of ways is too I mean the caretaker prior to Jack Torrance and Jack Torrance himself have an an abusive background they have like Mm -hmm. a background with the family and I think I think you're right Mike like I think it's intended to to read as something that is a bit more um not malevolent something that that you know a a a loss of omission Um, yeah but i but i don't but i think that if we think of it as the shining then jack torrance reads Mm -hmm. as as more than that too that that wasn't a character who just ignored his family he had you know reason to make amends with them the the trip to the overlook was supposed to be him showing demonstrating to them as one last ditch effort that he could change Mm -hmm. so i think that the the subtext of of where this film is drawing influences can also play a bit into our weird character because it's so impossible to read this without seeing a little bit of Jack Torrance, Mm -hmm. especially when there starts being a blood fountain that goes down the Mm -hmm. halls. You're just like, the shining vibes are ever present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in space, which, and I didn't pick up on the shining until I started reading articles where they said that was an element of it. Um, And now I'm like, oh, that's, that's, I love it. It's just another element to the story that has so much in it, you know? And it's funny because I I don't like haunted house movies and I, I have never like haunted house movies i don't particularly care for the shining and i don't which is my like you were talking about aliens earlier so here yeah. we go i have my my moment to to throw myself on my sword <laughs> but i've seen a lot of haunted house films and i appreciate sort of i i love the artistry i love production design i love the ideas and concepts but i think the thing that that is missing for me in haunted house films is truly this idea of being trapped and paradoxically, if you give me any haunted house movie and put it on a spaceship, like it doesn't matter. It can be the whatever the Ben Foster one was from a few. Oh, years Pandora. Pandora. Like it doesn't even need to be a particularly good haunted house <laughs> film in space. But there's just something about the claustrophobia, the fact that there literally is nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. Every trope, every jump scare, every paper thin concept that doesn't work for me, and like an old mansion on a hill, a million percent works for me when you put it on a spacecraft. So mm-hmm. like. That's kind of to me. That's that's one of the the beauties of this is all of those all of those jump scares, all of those haunted house tropes that I normally would kind of be like, you know, okay, it's The Shining in space. I am less interested in the Shining part of that sentence. I'm way more interested in the space part of that sentence. Mm-hmm. See, and I'm the opposite. I'm way more interested in the Shining part of that sentence. But mm-hmm. this, I think, is just the right amount of space without enough of the technical like stuff that tends to like it, it's in layman's terms enough for yeah. me to really buy into it yeah. and really not care about the space stuff. Cause I know you can't go outside. You're going to die, you know, and that's really all you need for a lot of this to be effective. You know, it's a very low science space movie for sure. It is. Yeah. Well, can we talk about Lawrence Fishburne? Because I love his character also. I love everybody in this movie, but the, this was the first time I think I was really paying attention to the way he runs his crew. And I found it, I really enjoyed it. Like there are moments where he maybe talks down to them a little more than I would like, but really only a couple of times. And like, he runs a really tight ship. He knows like what he needs. He's very commanding. Um, But you get the sense that he cares about his crew, you know, like the moment where Cooper is like, this is what I saw. And he is still like, Cooper, you're out of line. But Sam Neill, yes, I believe what he saw. Like, I love that moment. Like, he is going to back his crew up and he's going to expect the best of them. And kind of like what we said about Smith, like, he really does everything right in this movie and it still doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. And I mean, you could look at like what he says at the end, like he goes to hell. Like, this is like, that's such a 
terrible sacrifice that he makes, you know, like he goes into that blood sex orgy forever, you know, or I guess for seven more years, but that's a long time, you know, and he does it for his crew because he cares about him, you know? Yeah. And it's a good, I mean, I've always been super drawn um, to stories about guilt from folks, right? Mm -hmm. So like, that's one of my favorite things is like movies where characters are suffering to overcome past experiences and et cetera, et cetera. So I've, um, I've, I like his character as sort of like a, a parallel to Weir's character, right? Because they're both dealing with trauma. They're both dealing with some sort of guilt that they're experiencing mm-hmm. um, and how they process it and come out on the other side. Like this movie is literally about Weir giving into kind of those negative emotions that he has, giving into the guilt that he has about what happened to his wife and sort of allowing himself to be overcome by it where the character of Fishburn, Fishburn's character is is fighting into the last end and trying to like turn those experiences into something productive. So mm-hmm. as, as a ex-Catholic who knows a thing or two about feeling bad about everything I've ever done, <laughs> like the battle that the two of them are sort of waging is um, a great, like a, a great grand opry of emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that we've talked about on the show before. Like we've talked about how when you carry a, I think all of us to a certain degree kind of carry the worst moments of our lives with us for a very long time. Uh, and we've talked before about the idea of like forgive and forget, uh, where the forget never happens, but if you can forgive, then you can move on. And what Miller needs to do is kind of forgive himself in that moment where he was given a choice that like, there was really no right answer. If he helps the man who's on fire, then he's going to die too. If he, leaves him then he's leaving his comrade to like a really horrific death Mm -hmm. so there's really no good answer to make but you're still carrying that guilt with you for a long time and that weighs you down and this idea that like guilt that negative emotions that holding on like i work with people that hold on to things that happened to them 10 15 20 years ago uh, during their like formative high school years and where they're far different people now. and you know try to work through like if you could let this moment go what would your life look like at this like what would today look like mm-hmm. um, and I think that's explored a bit here yeah yeah and I think like because he uses that experience to save his crew you know and in a lot of ways like he does like that's why he won't leave Jolie Richardson or Stark at the very Mm -hmm. end um and it's like it's kind of the opposite version of what happens to Weir is that they're both haunted by these people that they failed to save and he uses that I think to make himself stronger and Sam Neill I think I think Sam Neill needs to address it and let it go as well because it's it feels like it he she keeps trying to reach out to him and I imagine he would probably be having dreams like that even if the event horizon wasn't super evil and trying to get him um but speaking of like just giving us enough to know like the fireman I don't even remember what his name is but it's just like fantastic like that backstory it's just a tiny little bit and it's a story like we've heard that story many times before like it's not unique but the visual of him being on fire and like this the talking about fire like is liquid I love that line and it's just enough Mm -hmm. like it just gives us a taste it doesn't give us a 20 minute flashback of it you know this is that's all we need and it's the motivation and it looks really cool and one of the things that I think I appreciate more now watching it, you know, for the nth time, however many <laughs> times I've watched it, is the fact that the film doesn't really ever 
it doesn't really ever commit to the idea of the ship as a conscious entity. The mm-hmm. ship is alive, it's transporting them to hell, things like that. But I think I think there are ways in this film where they would find something something singular to represent the ship, right? Like a like there are versions of this movie where you the ship is manifested in a person or like something that speaks for the ship and becomes like the big bad in this environment. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they sort of spread out that evil. So it's it's more nibbling at the edges of the sanity of the characters. And like, yes, Sam Neill is sort of possessed, gives himself over to the entity. There's the fireman that kind of spends his time fighting Lawrence Fishburne. But they, because they never manifested in a single guy, there's not like one actor playing the evil ship entity. What it does is it allows it to sort of, you know... It, it keeps the the horror, it keeps the threat of hell decentralized. There isn't one thing for us to fixate. Oh, look, they just defeat this one person mm-hmm. or they just defeat this like one thing or this one portal or whatever. It really like the, because the ship itself is sort of vaguely evil, it allows all of these scenes to kind of play out in a way that allows us to not really ever get comfortable with one thing. Like the, the horror can come from anywhere. The evil can come from anywhere. It's part, it's just, they are living in, it's per- pervasive in every foot, you know, every room they step into, every footfall they make. And that's, that's, feels like an un-90s decision. I feel like a 90s version of this movie should have had like, you know, one actor who's playing the evil that like in the end manifests itself and they get in a fist fight, which they mm-hmm. sort of do anyways, which is fine. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's nice that they, that they keep the source of the evil and the presence of the evil sort of decentralized and it makes it all just a little bit more scary. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like the ship is like playing on their weakness, you know, kind of in this the same way that the Overlook does. Um, and that's another one that never quite manifests as anything. So it could come from anywhere. Um, and I, I have recently been obsessed with Flatliners, um, which is a movie that I love from 1990. And it's kind of got that same element of like your guilt and your your past sins in quotation marks is the weakness that the ship is going to like worm its way into. And I just love that because we all have things that we're ashamed of or that we regret right. or that we can't let go, Mike, like what you were saying. And it's like that that's what the ship finds. And there's a moment where like, Lawrence Fishburne puts his head on the side of the ship and that's when he gets a lot of like the the Hellraiser kind of vibes and I love that they didn't make that a big thing either because then like it's kind of unclear about whether the ship is like it's the physically touching the ship with his head that is doing that or if it's like he just has a moment and the ship sends it to him at that moment or something but it's just enough to like no, oh, the ship can get in your head without totally right. derailing and leading us down a rabbit hole of like what part of your body has to touch the ship. You know, it's just it's just a nice little flavor of menace. Yeah. You know, I think that's why I saw Sam Neill's character of Weir a little bit like Colonel Kurtz from Heart of Darkness mm-hmm. because you have this character, you have this man who's basically pushed himself to the outer reaches of space like he has now traveled somewhere much further than humans have ever been meant to go and what he finds when he gets at the end of that journey like i couldn't help but think when he talks about like hell is just a word and what what is actually there is far worse Mm -hmm. i couldn't help but think of the line like the horror the horror like you can't even put into words how bad it is like you've gone to the end of the end of human existence or the end of our existence in the universe and what you've seen when you've peered over the edge of that has just driven you to the point that you cannot come back from it at that point. Mm-hmm. And there are 
there's this idea that maybe there are some things we're just not meant to know. Maybe that there's a reason why some things are cosmic and unknowable and we're not meant to understand them. And maybe mm-hmm. we need to respect those boundaries. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite pieces that I've, I've ever written, which is a super arrogant thing to say, um, but there it is. <laughs> One of my favorite pieces I've ever written a few years ago was a piece for Film School Rejects where I sort of compared what was in the, a very longstanding trend of contemporary filmmakers looking back to John Carpenter for inspiration. Mm-hmm. And Carpenter has been, for the better part of a decade now, kind of the person that modern horror filmmakers are trying to emulate. And in the piece, I sort of looked back at that transition point and how nostalgia works on a 30-year cycle and how the the really the transition could be as we move forward into the 2020s, moving away from John Carpenter as a source of inspiration and moving towards Clive Barker as a source of inspiration. Because Barker came a little bit later. He was most prolific in the early 90s, so he kind of influenced a lot of what follows there. But I think when you really boil down to it, um, the difference in their work, which is such an interesting parallel for our times as well, is John Carpenter's films are all about the concept of you're becoming the monster. And Clive Barker's films and books and video games are all about the concept of I'm becoming the monster. Mm. It's this idea of like unwillful, spontaneous transformation, something where you don't recognize yourself. And I think Event Horizon, part of what makes it such a good Clive Barker-esque horror film is not just the, you know, gothic death metal you know, production design, not just like the really good scarring and the really good way that they do like the special effects of the characters in hell, but it's this idea of like, I'm becoming the monster, not you're becoming the monster, but I'm becoming the monster that's happening to Weir and happening to happening to a couple of the other characters. Mm-hmm. It kind of, in a way, becomes an interesting bridge film between those two, you know, influences of horror of there's a lot of kind of, you know, you can put some Carpenter-esque scares in here. There's a lot of like, again, Into the Mouth of Madness, which mm-hmm. um, Sam Neill was just coming off of, mm-hmm. where like, oh, we're being pulled into somebody else's nightmare. But then Clive Barker in his influence is like, nope, this is actually the, the nightmare that we're manifesting. Yeah. And it, it feels like a fun 90s style Rosetta Stone to me in a lot of ways because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And with the element of guilt in there, like if I wanted to really drill down into that, you know, that you could say, I, it's not just that I'm becoming the monster, it's that I have always been the monster and now Mm -hmm. the ship is revealing that. Because the other, the one that I think I connected with a lot when I was younger was Peter's um, and the idea that she's leaving her son behind. And again, just enough backstory for us to get that guilt without going down too much of a rabbit hole. And just that, that she feels bad, Lawrence Fishburne feels bad, but there's, this is her job and that's what she has to do. And that that is the guilt that haunts her and that the ship is telling her what she already believes about herself and just showing it and showing everybody else. And that that's what eventually is her literal downfall. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else? We haven't really talked about Jason Isaacs so much, but I love him in this movie. I didn't really notice. I think I'd always known, but there's a big scar on his chest. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I've talked about having a scar phobia. This one didn't bother me because I have a big scar on my back that is just like that. And I was like, yeah, scar buddies. Um, also, Jason Isaacs is just delightful in everything. So he, he's he's like the perfect mix of spooky and like you also really love him and like you kind of trust him, you know, and then he just holds a knife to your throat while he's trying to calm you down. You're like, what the fuck? There, there's a TikTok trend going around right now, which is my pronouns are he, not him, because I'll never be him. Um, and then they share whatever actor or uh, celebrity or, or whatever they, they really love. 
And as I was watching the film, that popped into my mind that like my pronouns are he, not him, because I'll never be him, Jason <laughs> Isaacs in Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. The guy is just the most unflappable, cool motherfucker that's ever been committed to film. Mm-hmm. And it really like I he has had a fantastic career. He's had a marvelous career. He has nothing to be ashamed of or left behind. But like there are times where I'm like, this guy should have been the guy. Like he could have been the guy for so much. Mm -hmm. I just, I think he's, I just think he's the coolest. Yeah. He's awesome. And he's a good, he's a good celebrity on Twitter too, which is increasingly rare these days. Oh yeah. I don't follow him. I'm going to have to, I'm going to follow him. Yeah. He's a pretty decent guy. When I looked earlier, cause like he is one of those guys you're like, I know him from so many things. And I took a look at his like IMDb and there's something like 137 credits that are oh, in wow. there. Like it's an insane amount and he's still going strong. He's done like a lot of voiceover work for a lot of like mm-hmm. BBC stuff, but he's one of those guys who is like always in things, you mm-hmm. know, and this is probably ex- with the exception of his role as like Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter series. Like this is the stretch where he's, He's in this. He's in the Patriot. Is like mm-hmm. the main villain of the Patriot. Mm-hmm. He's in Black Hawk Down, and you're right. Like it should have been a springboard to something even larger. Mm-hmm. But he's not forgotten about. He still, you can still see him in like a ton of things. Yeah, yeah. He's got this mix of being like good looking enough to play like the good looking guys, but also he's a fantastic actor, so he can do like the the more weighty roles and he just like rides that line between like kind of evil and kind of heroic you know which is why like he gets cast in things like um harry potter and the patriot but then he also gets cast in something like this and Mm. i just like i had the imdb page pulled up and there's this look like he's just on the headline of it and he just has this look and i think it's when he's talking about the translation being changed and if you just look like you don't know whether he's the good guy or the bad guy if you haven't yeah. seen the movie yet and it's just like he just draws you in and i just absolutely love him and everything i've seen him in but this is the first thing i ever saw him in yeah. so i was like oh yay there's and he's someone that has appeared in terms of like geek franchises like he's appeared in star trek he's appeared in star wars like he's the voice of the inquisitor in the rebels cartoon which is incredible and obviously harry potter so mm-hmm. he's kind of a crucial part of like three of like the biggest geek, you know, pop culture franchises ever. Mm-hmm. He he's also he is another actor, of course, that's in um, Chopping, Paul W. Sanderson's first film. Mm. But he is alongside Sean Bean, who also shows up mm. in Chopping. Mm. And I just it's those those I feel like those two actors are both people that you're like you're you're just always so excited that that they're in something, yeah. and mm-hmm. they increasingly do smaller work, but like. Boromir is the best part of the Lord of the Rings movies. My interest in that entire franchise goes downhill as soon as his character <laughs> dies because I feel like they lose the moral ambiguity mm-hmm. that makes the first one so good. It's just like, yeah, there, there are just a couple of, there are a couple of actors like him and Sean Pertwee, I think is up there too, but just a couple of actors that um, come out of that English school of acting that you're just like, they just make everything better. They mm-hmm. just, they have this kind of like gravel voice gravitas that you're just like, I want you in every single thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like Sam Neill too. It's like, they know what the point of their role is and they know where they mm-hmm. fit in this ensemble and they're just going to add just the right amount of sauce that makes it just fantastic. Um, and you know, Jack Noseworthy is another one of those actors, not nearly on the same level, I think, as Jason Isaacs, but I've seen him like he's one of those people that whenever I see him and I know I joked that he looks like Bon Jovi, but he hmm. does. And like I always like whenever I see him pop up in something, I'm like, oh, I love you. It's baby bear, you know, and he just plays this like kind of doe eyed kid in this movie. 
in just the right amount of not uh, like you. She still feels like a character. So I'm tripping over words because I love him. But like that baby bear mama bear thing would be really stupid with less talented actors pulling it off, you know, mm-hmm. or with more development of that story. Like we don't ever know what that actually means. It's just something they throw out, you know. Yeah. And it's good. It, it again, speaks to that that crew camaraderie thing, mm-hmm. you know, a crew. Your crew needs to have shorthands. You think of the opening sequence in Aliens where everybody's waking up for the first time and they're like post deep sleep rituals. Like you need to be able to provide characters with the sense that they've done this a hundred times, a thousand times before. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are little moments throughout this that do a good job of, of selling that. You need you need there to be in-jokes and you need there to be shared experiences that they don't have to spell out for the audience. I hey, remember that time on alpha five where we all did like no you need like the joke that has emerged from that mm-hmm. and sometimes that can be really 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 forced in a film mm-hmm. but in event horizon it works yeah yeah and this is a crew that never really turns on each other which i also really love and i mean that's something that i think is interesting it to talk about in alien or like when a crew does kind of have like, smaller factions but this one it really runs well it works really well together and you get the sense that they really like each other and that they trust each other more than anything which which I think makes everything so much more tragic the way it goes down. Um, mm, not a coward in the bunch. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And the one that we haven't really talked about is Jolie Richardson. And I feel like she is probably the most underdeveloped character. Um, she doesn't really have that much to do, but I still like her a lot. Like she still has kind of a weighty arc. I feel like she, she is, I guess the Ripley kind of element in the crew itself not necessarily the way the movie plays out but you know she's like kind of the second in command kind of the information deliverer in a lot of ways you know yeah the film does sort of seem like it wants to make her the audience surrogate Mm -hmm. but it also doesn't really figure that out until the third act so it does make it like the first majority of the film it's about sam neill it's about Lawrence fishburne and then when those two characters are kind of like the two titans fighting each other for the future of the crew, the movie sort of shifts into Jolie Richardson as sort of the stand-in for the audience, our mm-hmm. lead character we're going to follow. But at that point, we've already sort of imprinted on, you know, either Sam Neill's character or Lawrence Fishburne's character. So it's unfortunate that she sort of, they they get there. They're like, okay, yeah, we want her to be the Ripley character. But you're like, all right, but Ripley was Ripley from the get-go. Right. And you're kind of backing this character into that role in the, in the very end. It's it doesn't work, I think, as well as as I'm sure they wanted it to. Yeah. Yeah. And with I think if there is like a weak spot in the movie, that's that's probably my biggest one. But even then, like she's she's great in the role. And I still like it doesn't get in the way of anything for me, you know? Yeah. She gets the Sally at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Mm -hmm. treatment in that like she at the end of the movie, like she's the one that has like the nightmaric vision at the end that like weir is back and then you have that third you know like well it's just a dream but like she's unable to kind of like soothe or calm herself even when like the remaining crew was trying to like it's it's okay like that was we're here we're safe and you don't know like you just see the portal close and you don't know if she'll ever be okay again like mm-hmm. you know my long standing standing reading of the end of texas chainsaw massacre is like sally never really escapes from the sawyer home like Mm -hmm. part of her the her sanity has always been left behind at that house and like what she experienced like she'll never come back and you wonder if that's going to be this character at the end of of Mm -hmm. event horizon yeah 
And they have the dream sequence to show for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I love because I think I've, again, like when I watched this, most of the times I've watched this is really before I was thinking critically about movies. Like I wasn't writing about it. I wasn't doing podcasts. I was just watching them to enjoy them. And so like, I think I thought, oh, it was a dream. They're okay. Oh no, it's actually Sam Neill. Oh no. And then I remember they are still on the event horizon, even though the Mm -hmm. gateway is in the hell dimension. And so I love like the ambiguity with that because I mean, theoretically they could, you know, it's still a haunted spaceship, but then also that trauma doesn't leave you, you know, and I love kind of now I like that being represented a lot more. Although mm-hmm. my, my reading, I think of Sally just kind of given who I am and a lot of stuff I've talked about in the past is that I want to have a more hopeful ending to her story, but I do like the, the recurrence of that. And I like that Cooper is the one who's there to support her because he was like kind of maybe a little gross in that first scene, but like you never get the feeling that he's trying to like be predatory with her. Like he just seems to really want to support her and care about her as a human being. He also Mm -hmm. did not, he wasn't on the ship for a lot of the stuff. So he didn't see as much shit go down. And so I just, it's such a nice note for the film to end on in a like horrifying, like really the ending is horrifying, you know? But it makes me forget that Lawrence Fishburne just went to hell, you know? Yeah, and, and when we kind of look at this and evaluate this too, I, I mentioned Eldritch Horror earlier, but I mean, it, it, this is giant evil demons from outer space that we can mm-hmm. kind of only grasp at. Like, that's a very Lovecraftian concept. Mm-hmm. And so the dream sequences, as much of a like, oh, three dream sequence jump scares in the same film, there's also, those are very much a way for them to kind of have a more overt link to the Lovecraftian horror, the subconscious the uh, sleeping mind is where the boundaries between these two universes are the thinnest. And so like, yes, it's a jump scare that like Sam Neill see, like wakes up after thinking that he's dead. And at the very end, you know, um, they have another one of those kind of things. But I, I think what that does is it sort of underscores the historical context of the film and the idea that like, yeah, these are, these are jump scares. They're meant to kind of spook you out. Like, Oh, did they get off the ship or not? But it does have this idea that like there are boundaries to our universe and there are weak points to the boundaries of these universe. And the ship is one of them, mm-hmm. but also, you know, the subconscious is one of them too. And so it creates a nice bit of Lovecraftian spookiness mm-hmm. to kind of go out on. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the film does the work to lay that groundwork so that it's not mm-hmm. a cheap jump scare. It is tied to like the core of what this movie is. Like it doesn't come out of nowhere and it feels like something that the ship could manifest, you know? Which is when jump scares tend to bug me is when it's just like literally the cat jumping yeah. out of the cabinet. Just like you know? the big, right. you know, with a big loud stinger attached to it. Yeah. Although sometimes I do enjoy a good jump scare. You know, I'm a, sure. you know, I'm a simple girl. It's it's when that becomes the only tool in the tool belt. That's right. when it becomes a problem. Yeah. Right. And this is it's like the icing on the cake here because mm-hmm. there's such a strong core of like horror. Like just the story of this is horrifying, you know. Um, And like that line, hell is only a word. The reality is much worse. I feel like that, like we've heard similar lines like that in movies, you know, but this comes so late in the story that we believe it because of everything that we've seen, you know, and it doesn't sound cheesy or it doesn't sound hyperbolic. It just sounds like really ominous and real and like present right now, you know, and also it's Sam Neill saying it. So it's just awesome. And maybe it's the Catholic in me, but I feel like a lot of, 
films that deal with the hell on earth thing like it becomes the hell is other people like hell or other people's actions it's kind of fun sometimes to just entertain the notion of hell is like a literal place mm-hmm. where bad monsters and creatures live and they're gonna come get us if they can like that's fun that's what scared me when i was five years old and going to mass and like that it's nice to be able to go back and dig into that a little bit there's a reason the concept of hell has lasted for thousands and thousands of years because it's sort of a fun, spooky concept. And mm-hmm. as much as we get away from the idea of a literal physical manifestation of evil, there's a place where we can get pulled and trapped into like, yeah, goddamn, bring it on a little bit. Like I miss that. <laughs> I wish more places like it's, it's a shame that the idea of hell is relegated to like so few horror franchises because it's fun and it's great to be able to have that, that place that we get to catch glimpses of. I want more of that in horror. Yeah, me too. And like, how do you fight hell? You know? Exactly. Yeah. What are you going to do? Exactly. Yeah. And the way he describes it too, because he talks about like a dimension of chaos, which I think is really fascinating. Like it's not a religious version of hell that he's talking about. It's not like a satanic entity. It's just this, this element, I'm sorry, this dimension where our rules don't apply. So nothing is, out of bounds and just the little glimpses we see it's just so fascinating and that's what is always like really drawn me to Clive Barker but also like that's that scares me like it's it feels very uncomfortable so sometimes like I kind of have a push-pull with Barker-esque stuff because sometimes it is just a little much it's like what what is reality anymore and what there is no safety you know like you you can't learn the the like I could learn about demons and the devil and I can learn like Mm -hmm. what to do I can be a good person but when it's just chaos there's there's no fighting that you know and it decentralizes us from the narrative too right like the Mm -hmm. idea of hell is like hell is a place that judges our actions and sends us there. And so hell is basically there because we're at the center of the universe. But if there's other hell dimensions that have completely different rules and we just happen to stumble across them, like in their world, their universe, like all the stuff that they're doing is great. Like thumbs up, man. Right. Cut people in half with butcher hooks. Like, great. What a good Saturday night. Mm -hmm. See you guys next week. So just the concept (laughs) that there is a place that, that, where that doesn't that our experiences are not the experiences and it isn't responding to that like that unknowing that idea that there are all of these dimensions and that we don't have primacy in any of them that's sort of that's again goes back to the eldritch goes back to the lovecraft idea but that that concept enough is enough to kind of keep you a little bit uneased as you're watching the film and realizing that like what we're all of the stuff that they're doing, it doesn't really matter to whatever's on the other side of that black hole. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, um, that's kind of unsettling in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like a, a, a tricky topic to pull off because you can't lean all the way into it. And that's like kind of what we've been saying. Like, if we got the 20 minute video of that, then I think it negates a lot of that mystery, you know? Um, I mean, there's there's a another read of this film where like Sam Neill is from the hell dimension and he loves it and he's just stuck on the ship and they make him wear clothes all the time and like be nice to people and listen to the leader and he just can't wait to get back to his hell dimension where he feels at home. Well, is there anything else that we want to talk about that we have not mentioned yet? I feel like we have done a very good and very rigorous job of appreciating this movie. I think we have too. I just, I'll say one more time for the record that I absolutely love this movie. Um, And so now let's transition to our uplifting moment. 
And this is where we share any grounding or coping techniques and any self-care that have been particularly effective for us recently. Um, Grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through the tough days and tough moments. And self-care is anything that makes us feel good or makes makes us feel better. Um, And I have been talking about, like I've recently gotten on some new medicine and that's been going, that's been an interesting story. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about that once I know a little more. I'm still kind of really in the middle of trying it out. But I have been listening to The Devil in the White City on audiobook. And that, I was really nervous about that book because I, a lot of H.H. Holmes stuff, it's it's upsetting. And I have, I've talked about being really sensitive to true crime. And I've seen some stuff that really leans into the exploitation of that. And so I was really nervous. But this book, it's so good. It's like really kind of hints at it, but tells it in like a human way. I feel like the kids' victims are human beings. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I thought all also the, thought the stuff about the World's Fair was going to be really boring, and it wasn't. Like, it's just really good, and I can't remember who wrote it right now, but I'll... Eric um, Larson. Who was it? I believe it's Eric Larson. Eric, Eric Larson. Larson yeah. yeah, yeah. I really, was really intrigued by it. It was very soothing at a time when I needed something really soothing, and so, and I followed it, um, I followed up after that Ghostland book that I've talked about, um, I think on Patreon, but yeah, it was mm-hmm. just a nice audio read. I might, might just read it again, you know? So. It's it's one of those I love talking about that book with people because they're like, oh, it's about a serial killer, right? And you're like, yeah, 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 fuck that. It's about architecture, right? And the architecture elements of that are so much more interesting than the serial killer stuff. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it took me a while to get into that, but then I was like, no, 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 let's go back to Burnham. This is good, you know. Mm-hmm. And just the way he manages to weave that together, it's just it's really engaging. It's really good. So he killed how many people? I don't care. Like, let's talk Central Park. Do exactly. you know that it's elements of Central Park? I know. It's amazing. And what color are the buildings going to be? I got to know. Yeah. It matters. It all matters. It and really- also, he, he did kill a bunch of people, though. He did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's mine. Uh, Mike, what you got? So, yeah, it's just weird time for me because my wife and daughter are still overseas visiting family in England. And we're in, it feels like semi-lockdown here again. Everywhere I go, like basically, if I walk out the door, I've got the mask back on again mm-hmm. after a few months of not having to do that, even though I've got the full vaccination. And like, and you know, like a lot of our friends are kind of like not doing a lot right now. So it's been a kind of a dull period for me because no one's really around. And even in the best of times, we now live like far enough away from my friends that it's hard to get to see them in the best of times forget about the delta thing so i've just been you know it's the laziest days of summer it's been crazy hot here like just ridiculously hot here so i've just been kind of like having to make myself a schedule because i literally have nothing to do like work doesn't start for a couple more weeks uh no one is around family is gone So it's just been like writing out little schedules and trying to stick to them to make sure that I get stuff done during the day. But what I found is like, I know we're doing comfort horror. Uh, I've been going back and either doing like comfort movies for me or a bunch of like first time watches. Like, how did I not do this? So I'm like looking right now, like last night was a triple feature of like my all-time favorite movie which is an american werewolf in london but then follow that up with like the natural and hoosiers Mm. uh, which natural i had never seen Mm -hmm. uh and hoosiers 
makes me openly weep when <laughs> uh, Gene Hackman gives his speech at the end and tells his team he loves them. Like, cannot stop for the life of me, cannot not cry. Going through, like, Scorsese's, who's my favorite filmmaker of all time, and like, oh, I haven't watched Silence yet. I have to put that on. Oh, I haven't watched After Hours or The King of Comedy. And I'm, you know, watching After Hours at like two o'clock in the morning because I can't sleep. And I'm just like, this is brilliant. How have I not watched this before? But at least I get to enjoy it for the mm. first time. It's made me want to do like a limited, like 12, one a month, like thing on just Scorsese movies. With some. <laughs> but yeah, that's been it. Like comfort movies for me right now. And like plowing through as many good things as I can. Yeah. Uh, I'll do something new and something a little older, but um, people on Twitter have certainly heard me talk about a bunch. I will say that one of the things that I've discovered over the last two months that has become just a source of a lot of joy for me is actual play D&D podcasts, um, recordings of people who are coming together and are playing different games and different universes. It doesn't even need to be a D&D. It can be other RPGs. You know, as a kid, I was a huge Star Wars fan and I kind of cut my teeth on listening to the Star Wars radio drama because you could only watch the movies so much and they were 90 minutes each, but the radio dramas were like eight hours, 10 hours long. So I'd listen to those constantly. Um, so like a lot of these are, are kind of put together by professional comedians um, who are role-playing as these characters. So they're, always, they're really funny, but there's just always been something about the RPG world that is like this element of creativity and math that comes together that like really scratches a lot of itches and how my brain works. So it's been a lot of fun to kind of delve into these and do collaborative storytelling because I have no desire to create things on my own. I don't really have, I never, never had a screenplay in a box. I'm a weird film critic like that, that mm-hmm. I'm not secretly trying to get a project made, but I like the idea of coming together with a group of people and co-creating a story. So that really satisfies a lot of that for me. And over the last five days, I reached a point, I think early last week with all the, the Delta stuff. I've started my my new little coping mechanism, I would actually say, which is I've started sharing one article a day that talks about the science of vaccines yeah. and kind of like some of the information in there across all my social media. I've created a um, couple of like a little clean template in Canva. And I basically pull one quote from one article that I like that talks about the science or how I'm, I'm mRNA stuff works or, you know, why people shouldn't be afraid of vaccines because I do have some people in my life that are unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of figured, well, I could get really angry and upset. And I think that probably I would have every right to be, but I don't think that that's the most, the best way to be able to reach those folks. People aren't, you know, first rule of persuasion is you start from an area of agreement. You don't start from an area of disagreement. Mm -hmm. So kind of like addressing their concerns and highlighting some of the things that I hear from people that are that are reasons for them to be cautious or untrusting of vaccines. And I've just decided that for as long as I feel like maintaining it, I'm going to post one little quote a day, one little excerpt a day, share one article a day um, in my communities. And, you know, I it's reaching dozens of people probably, you know, some <laughs> of them are certainly folks that I'm trying to reach because I know that they're unvaccinated, but mm-hmm. it just feels like I, you got to do something. And so I'm doing, something that allows me to put a little bit of information out into an ocean of disinformation. And maybe if somebody wants to have a conversation because of it, that'd be great. Yeah. Cause I've been, you know, like I've, I've been vaccinated since day one. I volunteered at a vaccine distribution center before they were technically open to people my age, because I was able to get a shot after the fact that was kind of the thing that was popular. in, in a lot of people in Austin is if you volunteered and they had leftovers because it's time sensitive, they would encourage their volunteers to get shots too. So mm-hmm. I have a hard time understanding vaccine hesitancy, 
And this is my way to kind of try and begin a dialogue with whoever yeah. might be listening. Yeah. Well, I'm living in the school district that just went viral for being terrible um, mm -hmm. about masks. And so, yeah, it, and it can feel really daunting, I think, sometimes to try to have dialogue with people. And I think if you do start from a place of agreement and a place of information, you know, then it becomes just like if you can just chip away a little right. bit at a time, even though that's really frustrating sometimes, too. Right. There's a kernel of truth in all of it, right? Because like the, the medical... There's a lot of good um, reasons for communities of color to be suspicious uh -huh. about medical stuff that certainly women in reproductive health, like their doctors, you hear all these stories about the history of doctors not listening to women about reproductive concerns that they might be having. So like that kernel of truth isn't in, in, in all of that. And if you shift your thinking a little bit to focus on the part of it that is true that's influencing how they think rather than the much bigger part of it that, that's untrue you might be able to change some minds. Maybe yeah. that's wh whether or not that's actually the case. I don't know, but you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater entirely and say like, you have no reason to be entirely unconcerned. You know, you 99% you have no reason to be concerned, but those fears traditionally historically are based on something. Yeah. And it's a good place to start with those, the actual root of those fears and move from there because otherwise you're just telling people not to worry about something that their families might've experienced firsthand. So yeah. Well, we want to hear from you. Have you ever been to hell? Do you speak Latin? What is your favorite Sam Neill movie or just what's on your mind? You can answer these questions and more by following us on socials at PsychoAPod. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group, which is a private and moderated space to share about the things we talk about on the episodes or just anything else that's on your mind. And you can email us at PsychoAPod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. And if you have a spare moment, please leave us a rate and review on Apple iTunes. It really helps other people find the pod. It only takes a second and it makes us feel good. Um, thank you so much to those who have already left reviews. It really I say it every week, but it really means a lot to us that you would spend time with us and that you would, you know, stop what you're doing for just a minute to leave us a, a star review and some kind words. Um, and so our homework question for this week is, what is your idea of hell? And I am interested in some creative answers for that. And we've started to get some fun answers with some of these homework questions. So I'm excited to hear, hear this one. Um, also, like, be nice. Don't say my my version of hell is when Jen plays recorder on an episode. <laughs> it's like you read my mind. <laughs> I know. Oh, I was specifically man. looking at Mike at that moment. Anyways, um, so what's up next for us? Well, it's about to be a new month and with it coming a new theme. And this is another Patreon request theme as well, which I am super excited about. Um, this one was requested by Nicole Denoyes, and I'm looking forward to hearing if we're pronouncing that correctly. I am looking forward to the correct pronunciation. <laughs> yes. I will still never get it right <laughs> in advance because I mispronounce simple words all the time. I actually <laughs> got a review like the host mispronounces words a lot. I'm like, yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> If it makes you feel better, I was listening to an audiobook. It was not The Devil in the White City, um, where they said the word wind and they pronounced it as wind. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Mm. That's like that Simpsons joke, you know, but I, it played out in real life. Um, so, yes, Nicole has suggested this theme. And um, I believe we don't have an actual title for it yet, but I believe it's going to be about objectification 
we're still kind of workshopping exactly what the title of it is going to be, but we're going to be talking about objectification in some different ways. And the movie we're going to kick it off with is one I have so many strong feelings about. I'm so excited to watch. I've been trying to get it on our schedule for since the beginning of the podcast. We're going to be talking about Assassination Nation. I'm not excited at all. I, oh my gosh, I can't wait. And so now let's wrap up with some plugs. Um, Matt, you mentioned sharing stuff on social media. So where can we find you online and what is coming up for Certified Forgotten? Oh, uh, you can find me online at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E on Twitter. That is the best place to go for pretty much everything. Um, I long ago gave up on the idea of anything resembling digital privacy. So you mm-hmm. can, you can whatever whatever's going on in my life, I'll be happy to share it. You can follow me on, God, I don't even remember what my account name is. Like, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's like MR Monogle or something like that. Mm. Uh, mostly just go for vaccine information and photos of my dog. Because um, it's her birthday this week, so you all have to celebrate Ooh. with me. Oh, yay. Woof, woof. <laughs> but uh, other than that, yeah, we I would encourage you to, to go and check out certifiedforgotten.com. That's the podcast that and website that I co-run, co-host with my buddy, Matt Donato. Mm-hmm. We are the original odd couple when it comes to horror tastes. But somehow in the middle of all of that, we have inspired a lot of great people to write a lot of great stuff for our site. Um, I think maybe maybe there's a piece by Jen on the site you want to check out too. I there don't know. Is. I'm just sort of spitballing here a little bit. <laughs> there is, For those yeah. who don't know, for those who aren't familiar with Certified Forgotten, like you have like a very unique premise in terms of like what podcast in particular focuses on, but could you tell our listeners, you know, what Certified Forgotten is all about? Yes. So in a nutshell, the podcast was based on the idea of finding films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, And I always say that it's sort of an arbitrary number. It's more than three and less than seven, which is pretty much like the amount of thought that we put into it. (laughs) But what we meant to do, kind of the impetus for that was that Donato and I were seeing a lot of stuff at at film festivals, genre festivals and and regional film festivals, really good horror movies that were sort of falling through the cracks a little bit. And, you know, they'd come out one year and two years later, they'd limp on the VOD with like no kind of no release and no fanfare. Nobody would watch them. They'd be sort of forgotten at that point. And I think as a horror fan, you're never upset to see movies that are clearly in need of no help get kind of heralded as these unforgotten gems and honestly today's episode is an example of that there's a lot of people that are like oh you know what a really underseen gem is event horizon no event horizon is not underseen anymore event horizon is a mainstay a 90s classic of horror most people who are into horror have heard this one that's great and more people should watch it but we really wanted to create a space where we forced ourselves put some kind of guidelines parameters in place where we forced ourselves to talk about horror films that were truly underseen and the easiest to kind of like the rule of thumb we could come up with is Rotten Tomato reviews because it sort of trends and, and parallels the growth of the industry as well. Uh, who knows how long we will be able to maintain that. I feel <laughs> like the the number of good horror films with five or fewer reviews is larger but getting smaller with each passing episode. But the website sort of carries that ethos forward and we encourage people to write about films. There, our mission statement is really write, pitch us on horror films that you want to talk about that other places wouldn't pay you to write about. And we actually will turn down pitches. We've gotten pitches on Clive Barker. We've gotten pitches on Wes Craven. We've gotten many pitches on Wes Craven where we're just like, hey, Wes Craven doesn't like people are writing about Wes Craven and you can take this pitch and you can take it somewhere else and probably get published writing this about Wes Craven. Let's stick to the stuff that's just like a 2004 VOD release that like eight people love. And you could never, ever, ever get this placed in a, uh, you know, like an AV club or something like that. 
we just want to make sure that, that, that as much as we're able, we're providing a paid space for folks who want to talk about movies that wouldn't get published anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Would you say like your readers or your listeners, have they come to you and said there's any particular movie that they went and either discovered or re-examined? Because I think you and I come from a similar space. Like we love film festivals and love finding the indie horror gems that are out there and like want to champion those movies to as many people as possible. Have you, what would you say, is there a title or two that your like readers or listeners have said, yeah, I'm really glad I, I found this because of your show or your site. Oh, um, that's a good question. And I am doing something right now that isn't stalling for time so that I can <laughs> no look up our episode list on my phone. Can you show us kind pictures of, re- of your dogs while you do that? <laughs> yeah, something like that, I think. You know, there have been there have been some films that we've talked about um, where I think there's been a few times where we actually were talking about films that I don't think anybody else really, truly was talking about. There's a film from a few years ago called Webcast, which is a found mm-hmm. footage film that uh, that the director shot about like a woman who starts investigating recording videos about a maybe cult that lives next door it's like a british suburbs kind of horror film and it's really 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 good um and it doesn't get like a lot of near as much love as it should i would say that probably the because they are two of the same i would say that a lot of people do i've seen people talk about uh cold prey a lot because we've done an episode on cold prey that we did with uh brian collins yep. And then we have an episode on Cold Prey 2 that we did with Rob Hunter or vice versa. It was Rob Hunter and Brian Collins. I can't remember which did which. But those are, I, I consider those to be as good of slasher films as have ever come out. Like those are top tier, like should be regarded along the greats in the horror genre. And I do feel like we see people that discover those and be like, oh, those are really good. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, yeah, that's when we started the show. One of the reasons that I wanted to do it is because I wanted to invite somebody on to talk about Cold Prey 2, which I think is just the best slasher and a much better version of halloween 2 um for sure just piqued my interest on it it is a better it is it is halloween 2 and it does everything that halloween 2 did without the self-loathing that john carpenter brought to halloween 2 (laughs) yeah i've seen the first cold prey i've never had the chance to see the second one and i should dive into that this year picks up picks up five minutes after the first movie ends plays the entire hospital visit it's like Mm. it is halloween 2 it's great Mm. it's so good awesome yeah i don't love halloween 2 that's my hot take of the episode i think we've all had (laughs) yeah Yeah, everybody's got one right exactly yeah well, awesome. And so we'll make sure to post links um, so that you can check that out. And Mike, you were just on an episode of Certified Forgotten, right? I was. Hell we, yeah. <laughs> we did Sweatshop. Hell yeah, we did. <laughs> Which was a hell of a lot of fun. It's a one. It's honestly like it for like a, you know, late aughts, really over the top, gory, problematic in a lot of ways with its sexual politics, like slasher movie. It is the movie that got me to say oh there is stuff out there besides like mainstream or like what is like straight to video and blockbuster and like it opened up a whole new world and it was really fun talking to matt and matt about that movie that whole like podcast is fantastic Mm -hmm. it's really it's been one of those ones where i'll put on like a half dozen and just binge through them and then like wait a little bit and then listen to a few more of them it's just like because what I really love about it, what you do is you talk about your guests' journey into horror and what got them into. And I love hearing how we all became 
fans of this thing. And I have to say that like your mutual admiration society, but your episode is one of my favorites because we ended up having a really deep, not surprising to listeners of this show, but um, always surprising when we bring on guests. The first half of the episode is always by far my favorite part mm-hmm. of any certified forgotten. But we had a conversation ab- about a lot of different things. We had a conversation mm-hmm. about this current generation of youth culture and how they're dealing with horror and the horrors they've had to grow up with. And we talked about school shootings and yeah. it got like, it got deep, I, but it, it also, it, it was, it's, it's great. Like, I love that. I love that we did all of that because we always do all of that. We have these really meaty conversations with our guests about their experiences and the culture of horror. And then we watch a movie where like Ted Gagan, a uh, zombie ass toilet mm-hmm. of the undead. And then we're just like, all right, this is the second half of our episode, mm-hmm. but it all just feels right together. Right. You go from school shootings to a giant dude smashing people in the face with an anvil hammer. 100%. (laughs) On a movie that costs $12 to make. (laughs) Well, Mike, where else can we find you? Me? Uh Uh-huh. Right now. Oh, not my home address. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you can find me uh, at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. You can find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum over uh everywhere you get your podcast that is the show that i co-host with Lindsay travis and we are wrapping up uh conjuring franchise i love doing that show with Lindsay. i think that she is one of the brightest most fun people to talk to in the world about horror movies and i love her energy and her eyebrow knowledge about eyebrows (laughs) in horror um but you can find the pod and the pendulum everywhere you get your podcast um, other than that, like I think I just did a guest stop spot on obviously Certified Forgotten, the Disenfranchised podcast, where we talk about the Friday the 13th remake, um, and also the Bloody Blunts Cinema Club. I think that is out now, where we talk The Last Exorcism, which, God, I hope someone brings that movie to the <laughs> table here at some point as one of their comfort horrors, because I love, 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 love that movie so much. Well, you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all of the socials. You can find me on the Losers Club podcast. We just um, did a bunch of coverage of Chapel Weight, which I was shocked by how much I really enjoyed. Um, and then I'm going to be talking about the Gordy Lachance stories as part of our archival series, which are the stories that um, the character in Stand By Me writes. So that's going to be fun. I'm not sure what's coming up next. I need to get on the calendar for that. Um, But yeah, so you can find me there. I also just did, if you're not tired of me talking about Stephen King, I just was on the Beauty of Horror podcast, which is the Anatomy of Pod Squad, um, talking about Gerald's Game, which I, that's the movie I could talk about for seven hours and just love, love, love. Um, Yeah, so that's where you can find me. And yeah, so that's our episode on Event Horizon. I feel like I need some death metal under us right now. Um, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for choosing this movie. It was so much fun to watch and revisit and talk about. It's awesome. Thank you all for having me. That was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Um, Pleasure. Yeah. Listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Please make sure to take care of yourself and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're we're all all out of of bubblegum. bubblegum.